you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name at his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. How about we pray? Father God, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you give us truth that we can learn from. And Lord, as we go through the book of Revelation, uh, we know that there is a lot here that we don't understand, and yet you want us to learn. And so we ask that you might reveal stuff to us and that we might respond with faith and humility and uh, be inspired by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what if I were to tell you that we are all in the middle of 
a war, a great spiritual contest between good and evil, between God and the devil, and it draws all of us up into it. Whether we realise it or not, whether we want to be or not, we're part of this great spiritual war. And now for some of you, that uh, might not be a surprise. You feel that this is true. You've seen evidence of it in your life or around you. You understand this. For others, it might be very scary, a new thought, a new idea that you're not sure what to do with. Perhaps you've been following us through Revelation, though, and you're sensing that this is true, and you're kind of dealing with that. Or for some of you, it might just all seem like nonsense. Today's passage, there is a lot of strange stuff in there. There's beasts, and there's dragons, and there's devils, and so on. And it would be easy for us to just kind of dismiss it. And to just think that this is just crazy, it doesn't fit in our modern era, it doesn't fit in our enlightened times, it's medieval, it's all just a big fairy tale. Well, in a sense, you're right, it is like a fairy tale, or I'd like to suggest something different. Fairy tales are actually like this. Uh, That's the point made by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, He knew a fair bit about fairy tales. He he wrote uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And he wrote a very famous essay called On Fairy Tales, where he thought about what is it about fairy tales that so interests us? You know, these stories of good versus evil uh, and these great conflicts and these supernatural beings and so on, we're always drawn to this. Even today, we're drawn to this. Uh, The movies that we watch are all about this. You think of the Avengers or something like that. What is it that draws us to these fairy tales? Well, actually, he suggests, it's because they point us to something that is very real, to something that might be even more real than the world that we live in, that actually we sense there is another reality, a supernatural reality that's happening even as we speak. Tim Keller writes, we have this impression in our culture that there's no supernatural world, that death is the end, that love is not eternal. But on a gut level, most people know that this is not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. This is why, even though fairy tales aren't true, most people feel that they are true because they point to an underlying reality that is almost more true than the way life is being lived in this world. That's why we read Revelation. Uh, Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. The word apocalypse means a revelation. It means an unveiling. It's showing us something. The whole idea of this book is it is pulling away the curtain so that we can see what's really real, what's truly true. That's what we're going to see here. God wants us to see the realities that are happening. And he wants us to see in this passage that there's this spiritual conflict that the devil is real, that God is real, that good and evil are real things, and we need to engage with these realities. And so today, if you're here and you're not sure about all of this and you're perhaps a sceptic, I'm not asking you to suspend your belief. I'm going to ask you to extend it, that actually what you sense about the world and reality, that there is good and there is evil, is actually true, and now we're going to see what the Bible has to say about it. We're looking at Revelation 12 to 14. Uh, As we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, there's various cycles and stories in Revelation that kind of point to how history plays out. In one sense, this is a bit of an interlude. It's jumping out of the narrative and showing some bigger themes. And what we're going to read is pretty unusual. It's pretty weird, 
but they're symbols. What we read are symbols. So they're not to be taken literally, but they are true. They're pointing us to the truest things that there are in the whole universe. And so first of all, we see the big story that we are a part of. Uh, the chapter 12 begins with this dramatic scene that involves a dragon, a woman and a child. The woman is pregnant and experiencing the pain of labour. 12 verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And she is stalked by a giant red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. You see, the dragon is intent on destroying the mother's child. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But he's prevented from doing so. The woman gives birth and then the child is caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Pretty unusual. And yet in these six verses, we have nothing less than an overview of human history all hinging on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the male child is Jesus. We're told that he is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm uh, Psalm 2. And the events described here sound very like what happened when he was born. Uh, When Jesus was born... Herod the Great was the king of Judea and uh, he'd heard that there was going to be a king of the Jews born and so he saw this as a rival to his throne. And so he uh, tried to round up any Jewish boys at that time and get rid of them, slaughter them. Uh, Jesus only survived because Joseph and Mary were warned about this and fled into Egypt and so they were able to escape this. There's clear echoes of that in these verses And yet that story points us to a bigger story, one of the key stories of the whole Bible. You see, in 12 verse 9, we're told that this dragon is actually the devil, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then the woman actually represents God's people. You see, often in the Old Testament, God's people are referred to as a woman, in particular, the mother who will bring the Messiah, God's hero, into the world. God said that he would come into the world as a, as a human who would save and rescue God's people. And so uh, he would be born to an actual human mother. And so God's people are seen as those who bring the Messiah into the world. And then these characters are drawing us up into this great big storyline, one that goes all the way back to the very beginning. Uh, In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, we read about how God made the world, and he made it perfectly. Everything we see is good and very good. It's all perfect. But then in, in Genesis 3, the serpent, the devil dressed as a serpent, clothed as a serpent, uh, seeks to come in and to sabotage this and to destroy all of God's good creation and to defy God himself. And he turns Adam and Eve away from from God. They sin, they fall, and then the whole world is cursed. That's what we read in Genesis 3. Now, for a moment, it seems like the devil's plan has worked. That's what he was trying to do, and now it looks like it's happened. But then God comes to the serpent in Genesis 3 and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the great narrative that underlines all of world history. The devil, 
is going to hound humanity and seek to destroy it, leading people away. But God will bring a saviour into the world through humanity. The offspring of the woman will destroy the devil. A hero will be born to a woman, to God's people, and he will defeat the devil and to destroy him. You see, humanity is in this great war, this great contest. The devil is constantly trying to destroy God's people, and he does it in two, of, in two ways. He will either try to overwhelm them with power or seduce them with his charm and his attractiveness. And you can track this right through the Old Testament. It almost seems to alternate, you think, all the way back to the flood. The devil kind of has turned all people away from God, and then God ultimately responds in judgment. But there's only one family. There is a family that God preserves who then uh, raised up and then Abraham comes and Isaac and Jacob and a great nation. So God's people are kept safe. But then they're enslaved by the Egyptians and once more God has to step in to protect them and to save them. They're brought out of Egypt and they go into the promised land. But again and again they keep falling and so they're sent into exile. But then God brings them back once more and we find that ultimately it leads to Jesus. When Jesus comes, the devil tries to destroy him, both at his birth and then throughout his ministry, seeks to tempt Jesus, to make him fall away, just like the rest of God's people have. Maybe Jesus will too, but he doesn't succeed. And then he continues to try to eliminate Jesus. And and when he gets to Jesus on the cross, it looks like once more he has succeeded. But of course, on the cross, Jesus was actually the one who triumphed. Jesus died because of sin. Acts 2 tells us he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Human sin led to Jesus dying. And yet God was in control of this. He died because of sin, because God wanted to forgive sin. Jesus' death was to pay for what we have done wrong. Jesus was taking on the justice and the punishment that we deserve and absorbing it within himself. And so actually... This moment that looked like his defeat was God's victory over, the, over Satan, over sin and over death. Satan had tried to draw creation away from God, but now the creator steps in to draw his people back. And so Colossians says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now Jesus is enthroned in glory. He rises from the dead because he's defeated death. And here we're told in verse 5, it's like he's caught up to God and to his throne. And as he rises, we're told that the devil is thrown down. You see, having had this extraordinary story in verse 1 to 6, we jump into verse 7 and we're caught up into the celestial realms where we read that there was a war that's in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, there's about 17 theological rabbit holes we could jump down around there. But I want you to see the key idea. What happens on earth in Jesus' life, death and resurrection changes the realities of the spiritual realm. And the devil is thrown down to earth. He no longer has a place in heaven or a way to speak to God. And so we read in verse 10, 
that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see, in the Bible, Satan is the great accuser. He's constantly trying to accuse God's people before God. He's saying, look, how can you love this person? I mean, you're holy and this person doesn't fit. This person doesn't belong with you. How can you keep loving them? They keep disappointing you. They keep turning away from you. How can you forgive them and hold on to them? And all of that is true. We are sinners. There is a case against us. But Jesus' death and resurrection resolves that case. In his death, he dealt with our sin. In his life, he confirmed that he had completely dealt with it, that we are now free. And so Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you, if you entrust yourself to God, then you're free. You're safe. As he goes on to say in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, once upon a time, there was an accuser, the devil, constantly trying to destroy his God's people and to say to God, You can't allow these people in. You can't love these people. But now there is Jesus, who is advocating for us, interceding for us, presenting his goodness, his righteousness, so that we can always be accepted by God. And Jesus has won. That's the message of the first part of this chapter. Jesus has won. In his death and his resurrection, he defeated your sin and my sin, if we trust in him, and sin itself. And yet the battle rages on. Verse 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. See, the devil has been defeated and yet Jesus, uh, there is still a time before Jesus returns to claim all of his crown. And in this time, the devil will work. He redoubles his efforts trying to destroy God's people, with a new urgency, a new fire, a new determination. Uh, he can't win. Jesus has already won, but he will try to drag down as many people as possible. And today's passage, we see how he goes about doing this, how he chases after God's people. And we're going to see it through two beasts, or metaphors for how the devil works. Let's look at the first beast, verse, uh, chapter 13 verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This is a fierce and predatory creature. Verse 2, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And it seems like it cannot be defeated. It, it, even when it looks like it's going to die, it keeps going. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so all the nations worship saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against us? And this is actually what the beast 
really wants because he's trying to supplant God. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And ultimately, authority is given to it. And so every tribe and people and language and nation and all people who dwell on earth worship it. Verse 8. This beast, I think, represents the great powers of human history of past, present and future, those uh, powers and empires that rule the world and demand tribute, demand obedience and, yes, even the worship of the nations. There have been many empires who fit the bill here. But for those who were reading this in the first century, the people who were the first audience for the book of Revelation, they would have seen the Roman Empire just so clearly. There's lots of uh, little details here. For instance, in verse 1, we're told that the beast rises out of the sea. Uh, The Roman Empire gained its power by controlling the Mediterranean Sea. That's how it expanded its empire. And then in verse 3, we're told that the beast receives this mortal wound but then is healed. In AD 68, uh, Emperor Nero uh, died and there was this uh, terrible year where there was four different emperors who rose and then were defeated, either uh, killed, murdered or committed suicide. Until And at that point, it looked like Rome was being shaken to its very core, almost like it had a mortal wound to this empire. How would it keep going? But then another guy emerged, a bloke called Vespasian, who steadied the ship. And then by the time John is writing the book of Revelation, about 20 years later, uh, Emperor Domitian is in power. And, he's, uh, and Rome is as strong as ever. It looked like it had had this mortal wound, but now it's strong. But the most obvious way that Rome resembles this beast is the way it sets itself up as God. You see, the Roman emperors didn't, believed they were just mere mortals. They thought that they were gods. So Domitian referred to himself as the Lord of the earth. That's how he wanted people to treat him. He wanted people to worship him. And that meant danger for God's people. You see, the imperial cult was arrogant, but it was also insecure. The Romans believed that their society, their, their nation had been chosen among all the nations by the gods and that the emperors were raised up to exercise the gods' power. But for this to happen, for the, for the gods to continue to, to bless them, everyone had to be a part of this. Everyone had to worship the emperor. And so Christians stood out. They refused to worship the emperor. And in so doing, they, they uh, endangered the whole empire. Maybe the gods would get tired of Rome and start to punish them. And so really, Christians were seen as people who were letting down the side. They were risking it for everybody. And so the Roman Emperor would start to turn against them. We read in verse 7 of chapter 13, he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, to seek to destroy them. Uh, This really began with Nero in the summer of Uh, 64 AD, there was this great fire in Rome that destroyed large parts of the city. Uh, And a lot of people actually blamed Nero for it. They thought it was his fault. And so he tried to deflect attention from it onto the Christians. He said, no, 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 they're the ones who are responsible. And so the people started to turn against the Christians. Uh, And Nero ended up uh, killing lots of them in just the most horrible ways. Some of them uh, were fed to the animals, wild animals, and 
and so on. And then uh, some were even lit up as, as kind of, they were tarred in, uh, smeared in tar and then lit up as kind of lamps for Nero's garden parties. It was just the most horrific thing. And this is what the beast will seek to do. Because you see here where its power comes from. Now, verse 2, the dragon gives power and throne and great authority to the beast. This beast is a, a power that is driven by the devil. The devil's constantly trying to overwhelm God's people and sometimes he will give his power to great nations and empires. And he continues to do this. He will always continue to do this throughout human history. Perhaps the most obvious example in our day is North Korea and the Juche uh, ideology. Juche is a name given to the official state ideology. Uh, it's shaped by a bloke called Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un. And so he was the great president of the nation. And his key idea, as he reported in an interview in 1972, is that man is the master of everything and decides everything. He's saying that humans are entirely self-reliant and don't need God, or at least not the real God, because he's established himself as a kind of God. He referred to himself as the eternal head of state and the liberator of mankind. And so he expected everyone to worship him. And even now, his birthplace is considered holy ground and North Koreans make pilgrimages to honour him. There's portraits hung up in every house. Uh, they have these things called reflection meetings where they would compare themselves to what uh, Kim Jong-un had, had uh, decreed, what he'd written about, and say, oh, we've fallen short of this. And so they'd confess their wrongs to him. And so it shaped every aspect of North Korean lives. And anyone who refuses to go along with this is punished. And so Christians suffer greatly. Uh, Open Doors is an agency that seeks to help persecuted Christians and they've ranked North Korea as the most dangerous and difficult place to be a Christian. Uh, if you are discovered in, as a Christian in North Korea, you face a, a horrible uh, imprisonment or death on the spot. Uh, to meet together with other Christians, I mean, it's to risk your life. It's nearly impossible to do it. Uh, if a Christian has a Bible, it will be carefully hidden and only read when they're alone. Uh, Open Door says that most Christians don't even tell their own children about their faith until their kids are older teenagers for fear that they might let something slip. This is the, the culture that they live in. It's almost impossible to be a Christian. This is an example of how the devil works. He seeks to overwhelm God's people, to crush them through power and raising up these leaders who blasphemously demand worship and will destroy anyone who refuses to give it. So how do God's people respond to this? What do they do? What's our recourse? Well, verse 10 says, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What's the response of God's people? Endurance and faith. Endurance because they're just going to have to get through it. There's no promise that they'll suddenly be rescued here. God's people have to endure persecution. But also faith, because the God that they're entrusting themselves to 
will ultimately win and they will win with him. And this always happens. This is what's happened in China when the communist revolution came. Western Christians were expelled from the country and many people thought that that would be the end of the church. Since the nation has opened up a little bit, they've been able to come in and there's like 100 million Christians in China. They still face tremendous persecution. But they have more Christians than members of the Communist Party. This is also what happened in Cuba uh, under Fidel Castro. Uh, they tried to destroy Christianity. The Methodist Church, however, during this time grew from 6,000 to 50,000. God continues to work. It seems to be happening in North Korea as well. We're told, it's hard to get estimates, but there's some suggestion that there's as many as 400,000 Christians in North Korea. That number will grow. God's people continue to endure. Entrusting themselves to God, they see that God helps them through and the church grows. Craig Keener writes, History shows that every kingdom based on power has ultimately collapsed. Yet God's people have persevered. The devil seeks to destroy through power, but God's power is greater. That's the first beast. And then we see the second beast. See, the first beast is big and ferocious and dangerous, a predator. The second is just as deadly, but it's more subtle. Verse 11, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It it looks innocent and tame like a lamb, but it's deadly like a dragon. And it's... It seems to work for the first beast, encouraging everyone to worship it. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Uh, Tim Chester suggests that this second beast is, is like the propagandist, giving like the ideological and cultural reasons for you to worship uh, the first beast. And note its methods. It uses magic and spectacle. Verse 13, it performs great signs. These trick and deceive people, convincing them to follow the beast. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Again, you can see how this fits with the Roman Empire. Uh, The reference to signs and wonders might be some kind of reference to demonic magic or, or it could just be pointing to the wonders of the Roman Empire, the incredible technology, the might of its armies, the lure of its wealth. These were the things that the Roman Empire could offer you. It was very impressive, but there was always a flip side. It was all bound up with the imperial cult. So if you wanted to be a part of Rome, if you wanted to be a part of the winning team, you had to embrace that. And as Christians... People felt compromised. They felt like they couldn't do this. So they would be punished and excluded. Verse 16, uh, this second beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This mark on the hand is is probably a reference to uh, work. You use your hands for work in the Roman Empire. If you wanted to be a part of the society and you wanted to have your own business, you needed to be part of a trade guild. It was like a trade union. Uh, but, and that seemed innocent enough, 
But when you went along to be a part of this guild, you'd find that there was all these sacrifices made to the emperor. It was a worship service. And so as a Christian, you had to decide, uh, can I go along with this? And if you chose not to, then you'd be excluded. You couldn't work, couldn't make money. Soon you would be destitute. One writer says that really what we're seeing here in this second beast is the power of peer pressure of evil forces seeking to just get you to bend, to go along with the flow, to let stuff happen. The pressure for Christians to fit in. Uh, When Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in the early 1930s, uh, some of his strongest supporters were those within the German church. You see, uh, Hitler feigned interest in the church and uh, promised them influence and opportunity. He butted them up. But really, he was just getting them to cement his legitimacy and to whitewash his sin. I mean, if the church said it was okay to do certain things, then who could argue with that? And that's what he wanted them to say. And so there was even a, like a Nazi Bible produced and, a, and it developed this Nazified Christianity. And for anyone who had misgivings, they worked very slowly, very subtly. They didn't just jump straight away to the horrors of the Holocaust. There were smaller compromises. And perhaps Christians didn't even realised they were making them. Or they figured this was an okay trade-off because at least they could keep going as a church and perhaps if we have a platform we'll be able to say something. But each compromise got bigger and bigger until there was nothing left to compromise. They'd been deceived. They were now slaves. Uh, There was a couple of... There's some people who stood firm, just a few hundred German pastors who refused to do that, among them Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a bloke called Martin Niemöller. And there's a story told about Niemöller which is quite instructive. He was imprisoned and then a shocked chaplain, a former colleague saw him there and said, what what are you doing here? How how come you're in prison? And Niemöller replied, well, brother, why are you not in prison? What have you compromised on? What freedom have you chosen to give up? What have you compromised to stay under the radar? But that's how sin works. That's how the devil works. You think back to the Garden of Eden. He promises Adam and Eve power and influence and possibility and excitement and joy. But then as soon as they do it, they become slaves. That's how... Evil works. And so we're told that what do we need to respond to this? Well, we need wisdom. Verse uh, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. You see, the the devil constantly create uh, an environment where we don't even realise that we might be compromising, that we are compromised, that our message is compromised. Just little subtle things, a little bit here, a little bit there until we lose our conviction. Just think about how we might be working in our culture. I mean, we have a remarkable society. It's wealthy, we're free, it's comfortable. But we can only keep these things if we play by the rules. See, a lot of this good stuff comes with strings attached. They're hidden, most of them, but they're there. And so you cannot bring God into politics. 
You must not suggest that Christ is the only way to God. You can't project your ethics onto someone else, particularly in the area of sexual ethics or reproduction rights. You can't press that on anyone else. And if you do try, then you will be punished. You'll be ridiculed, you'll be bullied, your conscience will be ignored and trampled on. And just like in Revelation 13, you, you might lose your job, you might lose your livelihood. And so we need wisdom to see this. We need wisdom to see what's at risk and how we might be caught up in this culture without even realising it. But it's even more subtle than that. I was chatting to someone after the 9am service and he was saying he's in the military and he was saying that one of the most subtle things that happens is you learn self-reliance in the military. Ultimately, every problem is solvable by a human. God is taken out of the picture. And as a Christian, he has to fight against that. He can go through whole days and at the end of it, he's like, oh, I haven't even thought of God today. He hasn't been a part of what I'm doing. And little by little, the beast is taking over. We become self-reliant. We put God out of the picture. We start worshipping humanity. That's how the devil works. He takes us little by little bit by bit, until we don't even realise. And so we need wisdom. And then he says in verse 18, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I don't know if you realise, but there's a few theories about this, of, <laughs> of who this figure could be. Uh, many people in history have been identified with this. Uh, Hitler, Bill Clinton apparently, Obama... Barney the dinosaur, I heard about that recently. Uh, There's a lot of superstition about this. Ronald Reagan, uh, when he and his wife left the White House, they bought a house in California. Uh, The address was 666 St. Clair's Road and they actually changed the address to 668 because they were so uncomfortable about this. And it was ironic because some people thought that Reagan was 666. In fact, people are so freaked out by this number that there's actually a name for it, uh, hexacoisa, hexaconta, hexaphobia. Uh, there's one for Scrabble. Um, so <laughs> but why is it that we're afraid of this? And, and what is John actually saying? See, some people think that John is using a kind of code. Uh, you see, the Jews uh, use this thing called gematria, uh, which is where they would substitute letters for numbers. So A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so on. And so some people think that John is putting together like a coded message, that the numbers represent letters and it's pointing to someone. Uh, often they think that that person is Nero Caesar, uh, that if you do the maths a certain way, that's what it comes out as. Uh, as we've seen, Nero was a good candidate for this kind of person. But I think John is actually being more subtle. See, in the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. So seven is symbolic of God, and it's symbolic of, it reflects how God is, uh, it's a number of completion and perfection, that's what we imagine. And so six is often seen in Revelation as a number of the devil, of Satan. And it's all that he, and, and it's all that God is, he's different to God. So he's incomplete where God is complete. He's imperfect where God is perfect. And that's what John is pointing us to. You see, right through these passages, we see that the beast is trying to replace God. He's trying to be God. He's blasphemous, trying to replace him and deceive people into following him rather than the true God. But he always falls short. 
Perhaps that's why the number is repeated three times. As one writer says, it shows the completeness of sinful incompleteness. It's constantly falling short of God. Just look at the creatures here in this passage. The first beast looks powerful, seems undefeatable. And if you were a Christian in Rome, that's how you would have felt. But then the Roman Empire fell. Because all empires do. Whether it's Hitler's Germany, Bonaparte's France, Hussein's Iraq, every empire falls. Everyone that looks too big to fall always does. But Jesus is different. See, there are kings and there are lords in this world. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Isaiah 2 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it's a kingdom of love, not force. And Napoleon, uh, just near the end of his life, has said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. That's true power. That's the real power, the power of God, not the power of the devil. And then consider the second beast. It looks impressive, great signs and wonders, but they were told that they just deceive the people. They're tricks. Jesus doesn't do tricks. He does miracles, real miracles. He raises people from the dead. He raises himself from the dead because he is greater than death itself. And so these beasts, as one writer puts it, are just parodies of Christ. They constantly fall short, so don't fall for them. That's the message of John's trying to get across. Have wisdom, he's saying. All of these things out there that look powerful or look attractive, if they're turning you away from God, don't fall for them. Don't be intimidated by those who are powerful. Don't be seduced by those who are tempting. Stay true. Stay firm, have wisdom. And then in chapter 14, we see the people who have that wisdom. 14 verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Uh, This 144,000 represents God's people. It's not a literal number. It's symbolic, again, the 12 tribes of Israel, And in the Old Testament were God's people. And in the New Testament, God's people begin with the 12 disciples. Now they're multiplied into this massive number because the gospel goes out into every nation and tribe and people and language and tongue. God's people are too big. It's just constantly growing. These are the redeemed from the earth, verse 3. Those whose sin has been dealt with by Jesus. And they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, verse 4. They're completely devoted and committed to him. And so they worship, verse 3. They sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. These are the people who understand Revelation, who have had it all revealed, they see the realities of this life. They see what the devil is like and they're not hoodwinked. They're not intimidated. They see the reality of who God is and they worship him. And I loved how they are marked out by God. 
Those who follow the devil have the mark of the beast. But those who follow the lamb have the father's name written on them. It's a sign of God is identifying with them. They've chosen him and he will protect them. It's hard for God's people in this life. It will always be hard. We'll always stand out. There are times where we might be excluded and bullied, ridiculed and belittled. But God wants us to see that he holds us. And now the great number of his people stand in glory. God's people will stand in glory, honoured, recognised by him, kept by him. I started today thinking through the, how these stories are so uncomfortable and unusual for us. But don't run away from them. There is this conflict. It's that line in The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince us that he doesn't exist. That's the danger that we might have, that we might just, just uh, ignore this and ridicule it. But John's saying, no, 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 watch, listen, learn, respond. We're told throughout the Bible that the devil is seeking to destroy us, Ephesians 6. We don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against the principalities and powers and one Peter says that the devil is, is prowling around, seeking who he can devour. And John's saying, let's just look at the realities and then look to God. He is the one who marks out his people and protects them. I love what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If we choose to follow him, if we choose to stand with him, he will protect us through whatever life gives us. Will we worship him? Let's not be deceived or overwhelmed or intimidated by what the devil throws at us. Let's look at Jesus, the one who is complete, the one who is perfect, the Lord of lords and King of kings, who marks us out as his people and promises to take us home. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this book and this passage. There's lots of things that we're learning that are confronting and difficult, but we ask that you will help us to see the truth and respond to it. Thank you, Jesus, that you are committed to us. You came to this world to bring us back to you, even though we had sinned and fallen away from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you pursued us to make life possible. Thank you for your care and your love for us. We may be in a war, but you are the victor. Thank you that in your life and death and resurrection, you secured the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.